At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at KeelyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Today's theme as we get ready to bring our guest on is the power of one. And the idea behind this episode today is can one person actually make a difference through their life? I know it's easy to say, oh, of course, of course they can. But seriously, when you read the headlines, when you look at the neighborhoods that are struggling, when you look at the profound challenges we face as a nation, as nations, as communities, as families, can one person make a mighty difference with those challenges? Can they help redeem the issue for good? And if they can make a difference through their lives, what might that say about you and me as we read the same headlines, deal with the same challenges, face crisis in our own lives? My friends, I want to introduce you to a gentleman that I've looked up to for a long time. His name is Josh Wilson. Josh had a vision to make a mighty impact with systemic poverty in his own community right here in St. Louis, Missouri. And learning the importance of listening over telling, you're going to hear that echoed again and again during our conversation, the power of listening over telling, the power ultimately of acting from a position, not just of good intent, but ultimately achieving mighty results on the ground. We will understand through the power of Josh's life what it looks like to live out the power of one in ours. My friends, I have had the great joy of interviewing some of the most remarkable people from around the world. I've had the opportunity of sitting at their feet and just taking notes, asking questions, and being amazed at the joy, the beauty, the brilliance within their life. And I got to let you know that this conversation moved me deeply. Not only the impact that Josh and his organization, Mission St. Louis, has had. It's become a lighthouse for our community and an example for others. But the joy and the vibrancy and the faithfulness that is on display within this man's words and in his world. You're going to love him. So here's my encouragement to you right now. Buckle up. Prepare for launch, man. We're about to go somewhere with this gentleman. You'll want your notebook. You'll want a pen that works. You'll want a hot cup of coffee or a cold glass of water. You'll want something to sip on. As I introduce you to my friend and now yours, his name is Josh Wilson. Josh, brother, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Man, it is an honor to to be with you. I love your work, your story. So to get to spend some time with you, to sit with you today is a joy. Well, sometimes for me, I'll be very honest. Get ready, listeners. This one's going to blow back your hair a little bit. Sometimes preparing for podcasts is kind of work. And it kind of taxes me a little bit. And then the conversation itself even can be a little bit stressful, depending on who the person is. Preparing for this guy and his heart and his work and his life and the conversation you're going to hear today was not work. It was an honor. And by the end of the conversation, I think you'll know why. But Josh, for those who may not be as familiar with you as I am, if they were to meet you in some random coffee shop around Webster Groves or St. Louis or anywhere else around the country or the world, and they said, Josh Wilson, hmm, tell me about you. How do you respond to that? First of all, nobody's ever asked that question. And next time I am in a, a bar restaurant and I get to uh, spend some time with somebody, I think I'm leading with that. But uh, I, I would say a man that, that loves God, a man that loves his family, and a man that loves people. 
So I love when things are so vague because either that scares the person away in the grocery store or the bar, or they say, tell me more. And Josh, you haven't scared me away yet. Uh, although it's in the conversation. So there's still there. time. <laughs> right. So I, I want I want to hear more about all of that. So so much of what we become in our adult life is formed in our childhood. That's why so often we begin these conversations at the beginning. So we're going to roll back the clock a little bit out of St. Louis, back away from the Midwest and even roll all the way down south, man. I know you were raised in Texas and then moved around a little bit. Talk about where you were born and, and what life was like for you growing up. I am the proud son of two parents. My dad was a pastor. He was a youth pastor when I was born. I have I have two siblings. I'm the, I'm the oldest of the bunch. And one, I, I still have a mom and dad that just radically love each other. And so I had this crazy example of what love looked like, of what marriage should be from an early age. And then on top of that, my, my mom and dad were in the ministry. And so specifically uh, youth ministry when we got started. And so my house was absolute chaos. I mean, we had people in and out of our house constantly. My parents have this unbelievable legacy of kind of laying their lives down for people and for, for those that were in the church. And so uh, loved hospitality. Uh, so I grew up in a, in a really cool home, one that was there was always something happening, always something going on. And we had a blast. Can I, can I ask you about that? So, so often you said a couple of things that were super interesting. Number one is your mom and dad still radically love each other. That That's hard to do a week after the honeymoon ends when you're in your early twenties, it's even harder to do as you age and go through the ups and downs that everybody deals with in life. Give me an example of what you mean when you say they radically still love each other. I guess maybe I should preface this by their career post-church is they do marriage conferences all over the country. I can give you small glimpses into, into them, but they fought really hard for their marriage. They came from very different backgrounds, and I am the beneficiary of, of watching them make a commitment to say, hey, we're, we're in this, we, we love each other. And then the effects of that on our family and what it looks like for me to now be a, a husband and be a father are, are huge. There's a, a ton of stories. As you can imagine, a, a, a Baptist pastor and his wife, I mean, we didn't come from very much. I can't tell you how many times I got to watch my mom and dad not only fight for their marriage and love one another and make choices, uh, but also they let out with their faith. I, the funniest story, John, that I have is my dad is a terrible golfer. I mean, an absolutely awful golfer. I've played a lot of rounds of golf with him. He has not gotten any better. When I was in middle school, he went to an FCA golf tournament and he's terrible. He was playing in a foursome and we really were struggling and our cars were falling apart. My dad steps up on the ninth hole of a golf tournament and hurricane force winds, which don't happen in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He hits a horrible shot. Winds pick up there, the ball hits the green, it rolls up. And for these tournaments, there's like one hole that you could win a car, right? Ball bounces up and to win a car, you have to have uh, three people that witness it for insurance reasons. So hits a terrible shot, slices it towards the woods, wind picks up, lands on the green, rolls right up next to the hole and stops. Everybody stands up, wind uh, makes a gust and blows the ball into the hole. My horrible golfing father hits a hole in one, wins a car. My dad and mom the night before had just been praying like, God, this minivan is falling apart. And so I have numerous stories just like that, where like, man, they love each other, great faith, a lot of dependence that, that God would show up in miraculous ways. They brought us as kids kind of into even some of the pain that we were wrestling through by not having a, a ton of money. And I am just a man that is marked by experiences like that because of my mom and dad. That's a beautiful story. You also mentioned that they loved each other and our house was chaos. The door was always open. People were coming and going. It's sometimes being the son or a daughter of a servant means that they give their love to others before they give it to you. Mm -hmm. So you're second or third or farther down the line uh, of the food train and everything else that shows up. It doesn't sound like that was the case though for you. Will you just talk a little bit about how they opened up their door to love others at the same time, making sure that they loved you well. That's exactly right. And I watched impact of kids that were struggling, that parents were getting divorced, that had experienced death and welcomed into our home. And then at the same time, uh, 
my parents were a blast. So people just wanted to be around. So there's always a basketball game happening in the driveway. Uh, all of that was happening. All of that existed. That was a lot of the chaos. It was also a lot of the fun. I also, I, I bear the same story as most pastor's kids, man. I, I hit college and went through an insanely rebellious time where I was like, man, finally, I'm out of this glass house. I can make all these stupid choices. And I did that and did it with a lot of passion. And here, here's a great example of how wise my parents were. My mom, I came home, uh, I was at LSU and I came home my sophomore year of, of college and I was in this, they just knew that I was miserable. I had gone through a pretty uh, tragic injury that took my, what I thought was gonna be my sports career away. I was spiraling. I was probably just depressed and hurting. And this Baptist pastor's oldest son is working at a bar in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I come home and I don't experience shame of like, hey, why are you making all these choices? You're bringing condemnation down to our family. What, what happened was, is my parents saw that I was in this rebellious phase. And I will never forget the Friday after Thanksgiving, LSU had at that time always played at Arkansas. We're sitting in the living room, halftime comes up and my mom goes, uh, hey, Josh, I need to talk to you. Will you come back to my bedroom? I walk back there and my mom starts sobbing. And she's like, hey, you, you're a pastor's kid. I, as a mom, spent so much of my life thinking that the way that you behave directly reflected to how good of a parent I was. And so because of that, I forced you to perform almost your entire life. And she's like, I am watching the ramifications of that. And if I could do this all over, um, knowing that you still love me, I want you to know how much I, I love you. And if I could just do this all over, I would rename you Grace. And um, man, we just, we just wept. And, um, you know, it's one of those, it's one of those moments that shapes me as a man uh, to one, hear that from your parent, uh, but two, to watch a parent model the act of forgiveness was just an incredibly beautiful. So there's a, another little snapshot into uh, how awesome my folks are. <laughs> yeah. And, and how awesome their kid is, man. I, I appreciate mm. you sharing that and the yeah. vulnerability of sharing that grace with us. So uh, let's speed forward into these troubled rebellious years. You're partying with some of my buddies down at LSU. You're majoring not in pastoral studies, but kinesiology. Why, why kinesiology? Uh, one, I had uh, my rebellious time turned uh, what was going to be a four-year experience into a six-year college experience that did not come with a doctorate program. So there was a piece of me that was looking to get out quick. And I, I had a sports background. I really thought that what I wanted to spend my life doing was, was coaching. And um, kinesiology was a path towards that. Uh, also happened to be uh, where my wife was also enrolled at. So being able to go to classes with her provided some of that. But I came out with a degree in kinesiology and as well as my wife. She's the one that brought us to St. Louis. She got into Washington University's physical therapy program. And I came up here and started coaching soccer. Before we come up to St. Louis, I read that Richard McGill had an impact on your life down at LSU. Who was who Richard McGill? He was a, a professor that, one, loved soccer, and two, just loved me for, for whatever reason. I was not the most academic, so oftentimes in, in my academic career, I was kind of popping in and popping out uh, of classes. He was the first professor that just took an interest in me, spent time with me, and then one of the things that we would do is at three, my, my wife played uh, soccer at LSU. And so uh, we would go out at three o'clock every day before they had training and we would have a pickup game with all the coaches and uh, kind of whoever we could get in. I, I asked my professor, I'm like, hey, would you want to come play with us? And so he came out and was just not only an encouragement in the classroom, but, but then to watch somebody that, you know, was teaching you come out and play and be competitive uh, was just one of those, it was just a really neat experience. And one of the guys that, that left impact on me, he's also probably one of the first people that, um, because I wasn't so academic, he's also the first person that looked at me and was like, hey, you have something, you're, you're smart. It was the first time from an academic standpoint, I think anybody had ever told me that. So Lee, your, your bride helps bring you up to St. Louis. She's at Washington University physical therapy program. While she's actually going to class and advancing herself, what are you working on? 
I I had this crazy opportunity. I I was I was kind of lost. I mean, we were coming to to St. Louis really to get her through school. We didn't we weren't going to live here. This is not this was not the end destination, right? We were going to go someplace way more romantic that had mountains or water or something like that. And uh, I had a really unique opportunity to do to work in a partnership in downtown. It was a partnership between the downtown YMCA. Uh, a couple local charter schools and a, a affordable housing project. And as I walked into to that situation, they were basically like, hey, listen, here's the job. We need somebody. We're a, we're a pretty corporate YMCA, so we don't do a lot with um, the neighborhood, the community, families, but we do want engagement there. Would you be willing to kind of step into this role and help figure out what it looks like for us to engage and serve families specifically in the downtown near North Side uh, community? And I, I mean, I, this is my first job ever. I was, I was too dumb to say no. So I said, absolutely. I would, I would love to do this. And so I stepped in and was basically given a blank slate and walked into that and started, started figuring it out from there. So you and I now live in St. Louis and this is our backyard and, and we love it. Dimples and pimples and scars and all. Yeah. Many of our listeners are tuning in from around the nation and around the world and you know, their image of St. Louis might be a report they read, a headline they saw somewhere, or a baseball team. But g- give a little bit of context on what the community that you're about to begin serving looks like and, and some of the background of that. Absolutely. As a transplant to St. Louis, I am one of the hugest advocates. I absolutely love the city. And you're right, it does have blemishes, it does have scars. Our city is deeply divided as well to this day. Uh, What I didn't know when I walked in was uh, that there was a street in our city that divided socioeconomic class, it divided us culturally. Though it's a a small two-lane street, it is uh, a massive trench that separates our city. And when I walked in, I'm a, a a white guy from Louisiana, had just graduated from LSU. I, I probably had no business stepping into the near north side. So that's where I started. And I didn't realize what I was necessarily walking into because of my ignorance of, of not really knowing how St. Louis was divided. But man, I walked into what would be the the north side, one of the more low-income neighborhoods, lacking resources, dominantly African-American. And I walked in and that was the St. Louis that I fell in love with. As I stepped in, I just began to, one, hear the hurt and the pain and experience the brokenness uh, while at the same time, the people that I interacted with, what I was learning endeared me to this place forever. Many people who live here and grew up here and have reasons to care about here flee here. And so here you are, a transplant coming up and working in a very difficult neighborhood and then say, man, and that's the neighborhood. And those are the people that I fell in love with. Why? A variety of, of reasons. One, I think I, I'm obviously very shaped by uh, how I was brought up. And so there was a piece of like, hey, man, I... I I have experienced what it looks like to love people. And as I walked into that job, it was basically the main job responsibility was what does it look like to love people? Uh, One of the experiences that marked my life in this work was I was going into a few local schools and I was going into their homeroom classes and basically they invited me in to do leadership training or conflict management. But basically what I was doing was icebreakers, right? The the first classroom that I ever walk into is a sixth grade classroom. And I walk in and it was kind of like record scratch, like who is this white guy with a bit of a draw walking into our school and specifically this classroom. There was a teacher that was just like, hey, I will take anybody coming in to give me some relief. She was very glad that I was here. Everybody else was kind of like, what's going on? The class was an hour. The first 30 minutes, uh, I knew that I had to gain some trust. I knew that I had to get kids talking. I wanted it to be fun. And so I just opened with this question of like, hey, uh, we're just going to spend a little bit of time in this hour just, just talking. So first question is, if you could be a cartoon character, if you could be a superhero who would you be and why? And uh, man, it was hilarious, right? I mean, the first 15 people knocked out every every character, every superhero. And then by the back half of the of that class, they were we were making up cartoon characters and superheroes and just laughing and having a blast. And I did that for the first 30 minutes. And then I knew what I wanted to do was get to your heart. I knew that I needed to get to one, build trust. And then how do I get to your heart? And so I asked this question, um, 
uh, hey, if you could sit down with somebody past, present or future, who would it be? Who's who's left an impact on your life? Who's left an imprint? Who do you look up to? So I asked this question and, you know, I, I'm sure, John, for you, this wasn't the case, but for the rest of us, middle school was very awkward. You know, I mean, everybody's uncomfortable. Everybody's trying to figure out who they are, where they belong. And, uh, and so the last thing that you want to do specifically in a group setting is be transparent at all, right? But I asked that question and the sixth grade little girl shoots her hand up and uh, she goes, she goes, Josh, that's a, that's an easy question for me to answer. And I'm like, man, fantastic. Tell me, you know, tell me why. And uh, she goes, because uh, about three weeks ago, um, I was in front of my house and uh, somebody came by and, and my brother was shot and I, I watched it happen. And I'm the one who called 911. And I'm the one that rushed to my brother's aid. I'm the one who sat there and held him while we waited for the ambulance to show up. I'm the one who was there holding him when he passed away on that street. And this is the first class I had walked into. I was not at all ready for one, the courage that this young girl would say specifically in front of her friends that she would, you know, openly weep in a classroom setting like that, the tragedy that that was. But on top of that, one of the things that, that, that my role and my responsibility was in leading that class was not only to hear people's story, but also to look around that classroom and, and, and look at how people react to what's being said. And so, you know, oftentimes, specifically in the neighborhood and the community that I was in, uh, you would think that that maybe, especially middle school, that that wasn't going to be met with empathy or sympathy, but that was exactly the opposite. I watched this classroom embrace mm. this little girl to watch the empathy to watch the sympathy but the heartbreaking piece for me was to also as that class went on to begin to hear more and more tragedy and how common it was and how uh, much experience the kids sitting in that classroom ha had been through and what they had been through and so and john i walked out of that classroom i sat in my car at the corner of washington and jefferson avenue and i just wept and just sat there and was like, man, this is not the way things should be. There should not be a sixth grade girl or a sixth grade classroom that has experienced so much hurt and so much brokenness. Man, what does it look like to begin to enter into that? What does it really look like to understand that? And then could uh, a weird, funny looking guy like me <laughs> that comes from outside a culture like that have any answers and can do anything about it? An intelligent, brilliant person would sit back in their car, wipe their tears and answer no, and then drive <laughs> and get and get a real job. For some reason, you say, yeah, man, I, I, I think this weird looking, funny sounding outsider can come back into this classroom and back into this community and somehow one by one begin to make a change. Hmm. That's gonna, going to slowly guide you into Mission St. Louis. Tell our listeners, whether they're in St. Louis, around the country, or around the world, what the original take for Mission St. Louis was. What was the original mission? That's a great question because, you know, one, I, I was so young when I started this 16 years ago. I was uh, very passionate. I was very idealistic. And because of that, I couldn't figure that out. I knew that we wanted to love people. I knew that we wanted to serve the city. I knew that I wanted to enter into the brokenness. I had no idea how to do that. And to be honest with you, John, I did way more harm in, our, in, in, in this city than I did good in that first year. I started a nonprofit. I wanted to address deep-rooted systemic poverty. And that's what we do now. But I didn't know how to do that at the beginning. What I what I knew, what I understood, specifically coming from being a pastor's kid and watching the church try to engage in issues of poverty, all I knew to do was distribute goods, to pour and spew resources and gifts all across the city, and then hope on the back end that people's that poverty was going to be alleviated, right? And and so because of that, that's how I began. That's how I started Mission St. Louis. I was like, hey, we're not just going to do this once a year as a service project. We're going to do this every week, and we're going to do this on steroids. And I have your name and your phone number, and we are going to change the world tomorrow. Uh, what I didn't realize in the midst of that, that spewing goods and services across the city, that viewing people, if I'm really honest, and I, I hate to say this, it's so embarrassing to me, uh, but if I really viewed people as a charity case. And so everything that I did was 
how do you just how do you just view somebody as a charity case and give charitably all the time, hoping that it would in some way alleviate poverty? And because of that, I did a lot of destruction. Um, and it was very, very harmful. Um, the beautiful thing was I did it really fast and I failed really, really quickly. Uh, before I knew it, every volunteer, everybody that I could manipulate to be a part of this was gone. I had like two, I started off with like 200 people in three months that was whittled down to one. I was married to her. She couldn't get away <laughs> from me. And, uh, and I had to start building back from there. Talk about that build back. Because it's not like just when you build up the first time and it's broken and it doesn't work that you understand how to make it better. You had to figure it out in real time with real people. So how do you begin building better after that first failure? That's exactly right. As I was putting the pieces back together, I just started emailing every school principal that I could in the area and just basically said like, hey, I want to love and serve the city. I have a nonprofit organization. Is there any way that you would meet with me? And everybody said no, except for one person. And uh, her name was Janetta Stiegel. She was the principal of Adams Elementary School in Forest Park Southeast. And she said, yeah, you can come in here. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, that failure didn't crush me. I still had all of my ignorance and all of my ideology and too much passion. And so I walk in and I sit down with Janetta Stiegel and I say, Janetta, Tell me what's going on in your school. How can we come in and help? And why aren't you doing this? And how about this? And why don't you do this? And she let me talk, John, for about 15 minutes before she stood up over her desk, put a finger in my chest and said, Josh Wilson, how about this? How about you shut up and listen? And I said, Janetta, I think that's the best advice that I've gotten to this point. <laughs> and I'm all ears. And man, she loved the mess out of me. She said, Hey, your, your heart is in the right place, but you have no idea what you're talking about. You have no idea what my kids are up against. You have no idea what's going on in my school with my families. And if you want to do something, and if you want to address deep rooted systemic poverty, I can tell you right now, what keeps me up at night as a principal of this school is I am scared to death that my kids are not going to make it to grade level in reading and in math. And if they don't, let me just tell you what the stats say for their trajectory and what that means for them, what that means for their family. So if you want to do something that's going to have a lasting impact, why don't you start there? And, uh, and that's what we did. We just said, hey, we want to step in underneath your leadership, submitting to you, submitting to your staff. Tell us what it looks like to serve in your school. And she was the one that really challenged us uh, to address literacy and, and, and math uh, at that time. What we didn't realize and what began to shape my understanding of what Mission St. Louis was going to become was that time in the school. And, and, and you know this, man, you, you spend a prolonged period consistently with a child in a situation like that. And you find out who that kid is. You find out what their life looks like. You could find out what the walk home from school looks like, what the family dynamics are. And uh, and I just, it was like the light bulb went off as we were doing this. One, because we were building a lot of trust in the school that we were in. But two, I began to realize that that though we had done so much harm, viewing everyone as a charity case, the way that we write that wrong is building lasting, loving relationships. Man, if you get to know someone, if you understand them, if you understand story, if, if you're willing to, to sit down and, and hear my story, man, there's, there's a, a way in which you hear what a community celebrates, what they love, what they're scared of, and what they want to see changed. And it was, it was relationship that began uh, in that school setting that began to shape everything that we do. We say, hey, from here on out, what we are going to lead with, no matter what, as we address deep-rooted systemic poverty, everything is going to happen through the dignity of relationship. Mm. I just started preaching there. I'm, I'm I, I got a little excited, John. Sorry. About that. Oh man, it's good. It, I, I've lost track on even where to go next because I, I think that that piece is missing not only in that one little school that you were part of, but it's missing in the school next to it, and the school next to that one, and the house next to that one, and the business next to that one, and in the Democratic and Republican parties. One hundred percent. Idea of true relationship, loving the one in front of you. So. I mean, broad question, give me the best answer you can. How do you begin doing that? You're in a school, you can't love all those kids. You can barely yeah. love one effectively. How, how do you begin loving at scale? So in our community, 
we spent about four years really, really focused on that school. And because of that, you know, we, we did, we were able to find out what the neighborhood celebrated. We were able to find out what the fear was. Uh, we began thinking about what's going to have the most impact to scale to, to, to your point. And that's, that's great. That's a great word. Um, what we began to see as we were in the school, as we talked to moms and dads, as we talked to the staff, uh, there was a demographic in our community that was drastically under-resourced. There was very little to no engagement. And that demographic also had the most cultural capital, right? They set the tone for how the neighborhood functioned. And that was the demographic of 20, 30, early 40-year-old men specifically, but I, I would say both men and women. Uh, specifically in, in the communities that we're in, that demographic sets the pace. They are the ones that the kids that we were in the elementary school were looking up to. And also oftentimes because of the chaos that demographic can have on a community, it was also keeping matriarchs and patriarchs in their home because a lot of the chaos, the violence, the drug activity, the gang activity. And so for us, we just began to go like, okay, that's that's who we have to go after. That's who we have to forge relationships with. And that's what we did. The early days of Mission St. Louis were a group of people like me walking around a low-income community just trying to talk to somebody. And I did that for four years. My wife and I moved into the neighborhood. We walked the neighborhood. I played more basketball on some broken knees than you could ever imagine. I also talked way more trash than any white boy from Louisiana should talk. Uh, but four years of going after that demographic. And uh, by the end of that four years, I had around 15 people that were meeting in my house every Thursday morning. And I was cooking an ungodly amount of bacon and our cholesterol levels were going to an all-time high. But it was in that time that that we we would we were breaking bread together every Thursday morning. And I was basically asking questions to this group of like, hey, what are areas in your life that you're really passive that you know you need to take responsibility? And here's areas of Josh Wilson's life that he is a complete coward. He knows he needs to take action. He's too scared or too cowardly or whatever to do it. How do we fight that together? How do we build community in that setting? And I, I kid you not, it was the most beautiful, joyous time of the life of Mission St. Louis for me specifically. And we did that for nine months where I, I had a group in, in my living room. And out of that nine months, I began to see that one, there was so much beauty so much talent, so much deep brotherhood uh, that existed in that living room. Uh, but what I was baffled by was the talent that existed wasn't being seen by the opportunity inside the business community in St. Louis. Like why wasn't the opportunity that I knew about, that I had friends throughout St. Louis that had, why wasn't that opportunity making it to the doorstep of, of the folks that were sitting in my living room every Thursday morning? And that's when the light bulb went off for us. is like, hey, yes, relationship. But if we're gonna go after deep-rooted systemic poverty, it's not charity that's going to make that change. It's opportunity. That's right. And uh, and so how do we create opportunity for us that became that, that ended up becoming like workforce development? How do we engage that 20, 30, early 40 year old, surround them with love and care and relationship and family? And then on top of that, can we match help match them up with the right opportunity and and to say, hey, what does it look like for you to leave a legacy for your family? You're asking questions that I think some of, our, some of our most sophisticated listeners rarely ask themselves, which is another way of saying these are questions that many of the people you're asking at your living room table over those nine months and over the following years that follow probably had never once considered. What kind of legacy are you going to leave? That's it's very forward looking. So when you're asking those types of questions, what are some of the responses you're getting back then? It's a lot of my fuel for what goes forward, but it is not uncommon for us to ask that question. And we ask it often, specifically at the beginning of, of new cohorts walking through of like, hey, what, what does it look like to leave a legacy? And I, I've heard this story so many times, specifically from some of our participants where I'll just have a man just start weeping when he hears that story. And he'll look at you, he'll look at me, he'll look at us and just be like, hey, listen, the only thing I have to pass down, the only thing that I own is a big screen television. 
with tears in his eyes, just going like, man, that is not the legacy that, that I want to leave, but that that's kind of all, all that I have. And so that that's the fuel for us going like, okay, we have to figure this out. The desire, the want, the ambition is there. How do we, how do we begin to do this? And if you can figure out the type of legacy that you want to lead, it also becomes the fuel for sustainability over a long period of time. Because the demographic that we get to see, the folks that are walking through our doors, the neighbors that, that we're with, often, most of our group has never received a paycheck in their entire life. And so there are a lot of hurdles that we're walking through. We're at the very beginning of that story, but knowing what your legacy is, knowing who you want to be, knowing where you want to go, that's the endurance that that really produces the most change over time. As you've begun making that pivot from charity to opportunity, what have the results been? <laughs> everything. It, it it really is everything. I mean, to to be able to watch somebody show up with their kids, um, to be able to hear stories of some of the folks going to career day at their kid's school and just talking about as they're getting ready, their child being like, I want to put on the uniform. I want to put on on that suit. Those things are absolutely amazing. One of the things that that brings us the most joy is to watch folks re-engage with their family. Uh, that's one of those things that has some of the most impact for me. Uh, and then two, to really walk into leadership in your occupation. Uh, one of the things that we talk about as we have conversations with business owners and folks hiring like, hey, we're not just trying to fill a bunch of holes for you. What we're trying to do is create the next generation of leaders in your business. And so uh, watching people see that, watching the light bulb go off when somebody believes. I say this to my staff, every time I onboard new staff, my biggest anthem that I sing over my staff is, hey, when somebody walks through our doors, they have to know how loved they are. They have to know how valued they are and that their passion and their skill set has a workplace value. To watch somebody believe that, not hear it, not begin to kind of understand it. When you watch somebody believe that, that change is absolutely unbelievable. You mentioned earlier that some of these men, young men, have never received a paycheck. And they're in their 20s or 30s or 40s. So the question is, first, how do you get them to understand how to take that next right step forward? And then secondly, as importantly, how do you get your business contacts to recognize, man, we have value right here in our own backyard, and you've got to give these men an opportunity? That That's a, that's a really beautiful question. You have to know, we're, we're talking about pretty massive behavior change um, and new rhythms. Uh, I don't think that you can do that alone. So you have to know that you have advocates around you, that you have a phone that you can call at any time, that as you make a decision to change your life, you've got to have, you've got to have a, a community behind you that's willing to walk with you. Now, we we make this very clear. You, I, I can't want this more than you want it. So I'm going to walk with you. I will be your biggest advocate. I'm going to love the mess out of you, whether you want me to love you or not. But at the end of the day, like this, this has to be your decision. And so going back to like, where do you want to be? What kind of legacy do you want to leave? That that that's drastically important. On the employer side, I am absolutely amazed how much relationship begins to destroy walls mm. when you begin to think about who's the right fit inside your company. Oftentimes it, it it's not an individual that looks like one that's coming from my neighbor and I commun in my community. But when you come down here, one of the, one of the things that that we do that we love to do is because we care about dignity so much, we we really want choice to be at the beginning of all of these decisions, right? Like if you know anything about me, you know that I would be a terrible accountant. So just because there's an accounting opening somewhere does not mean that Josh Wilson is the right fit. But in the space that we that we're in, specifically like workforce development, it's like, hey, there's opportunity in technology. Everybody needs to go to technology. And so uh, what we what we begin to do is like, hey, we need a menu of things that that people could be interested in and, and opportunities that exist out there. And then individuals need to have that choice in the middle of it. And so as that choice begins to happen, we're able to bring in some of those employers to be like, hey. John's a part of our, our program and he's really interested in, in the technology space. Will you, man, will you come down here? Will you talk to him about what that looks like? Will you talk to him about what some of those opportunities are? Will you bring that education piece? But what that does is, is it starts building this relationship. You begin to hear somebody's story. You begin to hear about who they want to be, where they want to go. And that 
that what feels like risk because it's unknown, because you're not comfortable, because it's something that's outside of you drastically decreases when I get to look at your face, when I get to see what you're passionate about, when I get to hear the questions that you ask. And so it's not uncommon for people's entire worldview to be flipped when they come down and hear somebody's story. So let's talk about the story and pick one specifically. Can you share an in example of an individual who came in maybe with their, their shirt untucked, the shoulders slumped and no desire to be next to you. <laughs> and yet then going through this process, um, their life maybe began to change and the life of their family began to change and the legacy they were going to leave begins to change. That breakfast almost 13 years ago, there was one of the most unbelievable men I've ever met in my life. His name is Darnell Cooper. And Darnell was the guy on the block that was just just looked like he was just pissed off all the time. I could not talk enough trash to get him to in, engage with me. We would play, he was always standoffish. He was always on the, on the side. He was always kind of around what was happening, but never in it. And I don't know why I, I just like, this is, this is my guy. Like I, I know if we can get Darnell, like, man, that, this, this opens up so much stuff. And so, uh, man, Darnell became the guy that I was just like, man, you're, you don't know it yet, but you're, you're going to be my, you're going to be my best buddy, man. You're going to be my friend. I think he was a sophomore in high school at that time. And that's what happened. We just became the best of friends every Thursday. He didn't miss. He became a family member. He lived with my family and I for a while. He was one of the first participants to go through our job training program. And when it hit his senior year, we got to sit down with him and, and his, his his mom and his family as he just became, uh, he's a great football player. And so he was trying to figure out where to go. We watched him move across the country to California, stayed connected every time he came back in. He, he, he was, he's just a part of our family. And then as that continued to develop, I watched this man get his degree I watch him. We have these start having these conversations about like, hey, what is what does the nonprofit space look like? How do I, um, where I was once maybe destructive in a community, how do I become someone that's like building that community back? He ends up getting this incredible job with affordable crowd uh, affordable housing in Phoenix, Arizona, and then uh, in the middle of COVID, I get this phone call where he goes, "Any chance that you can get to Phoenix, Arizona in three months?" And I'm like, "What? It's like the height of COVID." He's like, I know, but I found her and she's not getting away from me. And I want you to be there. We can only have, I think you can only have like 10 people, family and everybody there. He's like, but I, you and Lee have to get here, do whatever it takes. We show up, we get to be a part of his, his wedding. We watch him marry this beautiful girl. He shows back up uh, two years ago to my house. He was in, in town to visit and uh, he comes over, we cook dinner and he just slides a picture of a pregnancy picture that he had just gotten. And he is the most unbelievable dad. He is working in an industry that is rebuilding neighborhoods and communities. He is leaving the legacy for his family that I could only hope and desire. And uh, man, I, I love that man more than I could ever express. Mm, Darnell. Darnell Cooper. And that's one. And there's a second, and then there's a third, and there's a fourth. And when you look at the macro impact so far, and I know you're you're early in this thing, man, the that road that you said divides the north and the south in our city continues yep. to divide the north and the south, the haves sure. and the have-nots, those people. And those words, those people work both ways, those people. And it is a divisive, destructive term that too often is thrown across that road and across uh, our neighborhoods. How many lives have you been impacting through the work you've done to this point? I have no idea the answer to that question. I can tell you that we see roughly 5,000 people will walk through our doors annually. That can be a, a variety of different things. You know, when we first got started, we were uh, in a little 5,000 square foot building and we were just getting up and going. And about seven years ago, uh, we moved into a 80,000 square foot building in the heart of North St. Louis. It used to be an old YMCA. And because of that, of that space and because of being where we are, it's amazing to watch 
who comes to our door. We've created this space where we've just kind of said like, hey, we want to be a lighthouse. We want to see the flourishing of our community happen. We also know that we can't do it alone. And so we've brought in partners. We brought in a banking institution because we knew that we needed access to capital in our community. There is an incredible university that 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 uh, that you may know very well. St. Louis University brought in a legal clinic uh, into our building to help uh, folks navigate legal issues. We have addiction services and mental health services. And so uh, from a variety of different aspects, we are watching roughly 5,000 folks come through our doors for a variety uh, of different needs. And uh, man, it is a joy. It is a celebration. It's one of those things that you kind of wake up every day and being like, do we really get to do this? Is this, is this real life? So I know the building where you are now. I think it's so awesome that you're there and that you're rooted there. And I was going to, we're, we're going to begin moving toward the completion of our conversation here shortly. And as I do so for question number one is what's the, what's the vision as you look forward broadly for Mission St. Louis? It, it kind of gets back to to what you're talking about um, before, like, hey, what what does the impact of the neighborhood and the community begin to to look like? We have we've spent most of the life of Mission St. Louis really addressing like deep rooted issues of poverty, and and really on top of that, I would say um, building trust. And now that we're in a building in the in the heart of our community, uh, the question really becomes like, what does rebuilding look like? You know, if you were to ask me, what's going to have the most impact is I want to. I, I want our kids to be able to hit grade level. I want to see them go on to uh, create the opportunities that that they know and 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 deserve. The same thing also needs to happen with those that are walking into employment and getting new opportunity. Um, and and we'll always do that. I think it's it's beautiful. One of the things that that we we really care deeply about, and if we're going to address on a massive scale issues of poverty, we have to begin thinking about that asset piece, right? I I don't want to hear another man walk through my door and say, the only thing that I own is a big screen TV. Yeah. And so it becomes our responsibility and our job, not only to make sure that the opportunity is there, but we also need to begin thinking about what the makeup of our community looks like. As you are walking into job opportunities, we know that there are the right entrepreneurs that need to begin thinking about what it looks like to rebuild the community and the neighborhood that we're in by starting businesses. We need to deeply care about what that pipeline for housing is. Man, the biggest asset that, that many of us have is our own home. And so what does it look like to walk that progression out, to, to go from maybe couch surfing, maybe being technically homeless, to having an apartment, to beginning to, to purchase that house. And so we're really beginning to think about the neighborhood fabric and specifically the access to assets in our community, not as coming in and, and wanting to just gentrify a neighborhood and say, hey, every community needs to have these things, but really listening to a community, asking what that community wants, and then making sure that we're leveraging every resource, every relationship we have for that community to be able to experience what they uh, what they believe. So our, our vision is to put deep roots inside of a community to continue to serve folks in, in the capacity that we're serving now, but really thinking about what does it look like to put on a developer hat to begin leveraging and building assets in the communities that we're in. So whether we're tuning in from uh, Webster Groves today here in St. Louis or uh, somewhere around the world, how can we learn more about the mission and our ability to engage with you? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking. I mean, I love this work. If you want to, if you want to find out more about us, we spend a lot of time kind of talking about what we've been talking about today, John, and our story is on www.missionstl.org. Uh, there's a variety of different resources that kind of talks about what we do, the programs that we have, and uh, would love to engage with anybody that, man, maybe you're just thinking about doing this somewhere where, where you live. We would love to begin to, I mean, if we can do anything, we can talk about what not to do and our failures. So uh, happy to do that. And then and happy to just talk about like, what does it look like to love those that you're around to forge relationships, to listen really well, and then to build on top of that. Many of our folks that we bring onto the podcast are authors and speakers. So I, ha I have like this long list of quotes that they have, and I have a few from you too. But today, as we get ready to move into the Live Inspired 7, I'm going to quote back one of your quotes that I wrote down and uh, and then for you to unpack to our audience what it means. I think it's pretty obvious, but here it is. One of the most beautiful things that I get to do on a consistent basis is to look someone in the eye and affirm who they are. 
If you know that you are loved, that you are valued, that you have a talent and a skill set, and it brings value in this world, it produces the hope that it takes to overcome so many obstacles. Mm. Tell me what that, why does that matter? Why does it sound so much better when you say it? <laughs> I, I, I'm practicing in the mirror all morning long. I'm glad I finally got it just right. <laughs> It, it, it's the foundation of everything. There's no question to me to go back to the very beginning of our conversation today, to be a man that is marked by a mom and dad that radically loved them. When you know that you are loved, uh, when you know that it's this idea of the Imago Day that you're created in the image of God, that you are that you are not a mistake, that mm. you didn't just just happen here, that you were placed here for a reason and because of that, that you have dignity, value, and worth. That is not an easy thing to, to understand. That is not an easy thing to believe all the time about ourselves. But when you do, when you're able to see yourself in the eyes uh, of those around you, when you know that you have worth, it changes your life. It gives you the confidence to be able to step into territory that you may be scared to death of. It gives you the courage to be able to do things that you could never dare dream. And uh, to not only believe that, but then also to surround yourself with people that believe that about you, that can speak that into you. I think that's where the world changers come from. It's too bad Mission St. Louis doesn't have a more articulate spokesperson. Because if <laughs> we did, we could really you know, celebrate the mission of this organization and that they're having. So maybe one day Josh will retire out and we can bring in someone worthy to replace this individual. JV to your varsity for sure. <laughs> Josh, I've loved it, man. I mean, it's been about the quickest hour that I can remember as, as we get ready to wrap up this conversation and launch our listeners and viewers into their day and into their mission and into the value of their lives. We have seven questions that tether all of our guests together. They're called the Live Inspired Seven. I think you're, you're going to be capable of answering these seven questions. Question number one, what's been the most impactful book you've ever read? Man, that's such a great, I mean, I, I have to like, I feel like I'm in Sunday school again, if you don't say Jesus and, and the Bible, that's definitely up there. I will also say uh, Leading with a Limp is a, a book that that really wrecked me. Um, it's one of those books that allowed me to see that your failure can also be your place of vulnerability, your place of hurt, where you have been harmed is also a place of your greatest strength. And um, that book greatly shaped me. So you just sold one. I, I have not heard that <laughs> before, but I just wrote it down, man. Like that, it sounds ideal and necessary because mm. we all pretend like we don't have a limp and the limp makes us weak. Uh, and yet there's an example all over the place, including in the Bible, the power of leading with that limp. What, what's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a kid growing up around Texas and New Mexico and Louisiana that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Courage. I think the beauty of before you get into the world as a kid, how much courage I had for things and for life and how much more difficult maybe it is now to really, not that it's not there, but what it looks like to really take some hard steps, understanding ramifications, but, uh, but courage would be, would be that quality trait. And I'm just going to say this because it hasn't been said clearly to our listeners yet. We we have a little brother who lives in the city of St. Louis and when I drop him off and I'm surrounded by folks who uh, I don't know and they don't know me, I'm anxious and that's being polite. Uh, I'm very nervous walking him sometimes to his door and then walking back out to the car all by myself. And so I say that only to let you know, I think you playing basketball with a bunch of kids who are in high school or not even in high school right now shows me and then our listeners and viewers that you have a ton of courage, man. You may not always see it, but you uh, you exude it. Thank you. If your home caught fire and your kids and your bride and whatever animals you may have are out safely and you are able to run back in and grab one thing, one item, what's that one thing you would grab? I really want to say my fly fishing rod, but I know my wife is going to listen to this. And so uh, <laughs> uh, I would, uh, Sorry, I would, Lee. I would, Yes, right. <laughs> let the uh, wedding bands burn i got my fishing rod that's exactly right because uh, uh we got married before everything was digital i think i'd have to to rush back in and and, and grab that the, the wedding photos and, and, and that book so that's that's going to score me some points too but just secretly i would also grab that that fly fishing rod <laughs> if you could sit on a sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased who would you like to be seated next to 
my father without a doubt. Tell me more about that. My dad has just an unbelievable way of helping put things in perspective. He's the most encouraging man to me. He loves me really well, and he is hilarious and goofy. And I know that I would leave that porch challenged, encouraged, and laughing. So I, I was asked two days ago, I, I, I rarely speak to like elementary schools, you know, just life is so busy right now, but I made an excuse to sneak into one recently. And that was one of the questions asked of me. So the guy wrapping up the conversation said, who would you want to sit next to? And my answer was my dad. Yeah. And my dad listens to a lot of these podcasts and I hope dad, you're listening to this one. My, my dad has a very faint voice these days after three decades of Parkinson's disease. But even today, he's got so much to share in the silence and in the goofiness and in his grin and in his presence. Mm. So, uh, Josh, we share that encouragement so and wisdom we get from our dad, sometimes through their words and many times just through their presence. Mm. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Keep going. I was actually just kind of reflecting on that. We had, a, we had our, our big Christmas party and uh, just sat down next to uh, the, the first hire I ever made at Mission St. Louis is still with me. Her name's Joy Clark. She's unbelievable. And it was just a, we were just sitting there talking about all of the heartache, all of the pain that it took in, in this journey over the last 16 years, both personally and professionally and all that. And to look back at that, that 20 year old and just say, Hey man, just keep going. It's good. It's hard. I think that's what I would tell him. What's the best advice you've ever received? Probably shut up and listen. I think that has been an echo in in my ear. I am I am a performer. Uh, I love to talk. I, I, I kind of always want to be the center of attention, and that's kind of marked me uh, through through my early years. I fought really hard to just go, hey, what does it look like to be curious? What does it look like to listen? I think it's I think it's great advice. Josh Wilson, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? He was a passionate man that loved me well. Josh Wilson, you are indeed a passionate man who uh, you do an incredible job loving your family. That's where it starts, mm -hmm. loving your God, loving your team, your crew, your community, those who look, act, worship, and vote just like you, and those who look, act, vote, and worship completely differently than you. Mm -hmm. It's an awesome example, man. And I hope you multiply that love through your life going forward. John, thank you. This time, every time that I get to spend uh, with you, I was talking to my wife before I came out here and just uh, your story, reading your book. There's nobody that leaves time with you, specifically now, specifically me, uh, that is not marked by your love for people, your passion, and um, man, your life means a lot to me. And uh, this time today does too. So thank you for your story. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your love of people uh, and your encouragement today means the world to me. Josh Wilson read that exactly like I wrote it earlier this morning when I emailed it to him. So I just want to make sure you all <laughs> That not only can he lead and speak brilliantly, he can read as effectively. So that that was well said, Josh. It, and I learned about a week ago in Toledo, Ohio, from a new friend to shut up and say the word thank you when you get a compliment. So uh, that's hard for me to do, but I'll do it right now. Thank you. And to our listeners, I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired podcast community and for checking out this episode. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. That was Josh Wilson. And today is your day. What a gift. Live Inspired. Well, my friends, I want to thank you for tuning into this episode as we put a bow on 2023. I hope today's conversation with Josh Wilson reminds you that you have the power to make positive, lasting impact in your community, wherever that might be, regardless of some of the missteps you may have taken when you first got there. I think Josh is a pretty good example of both of those things, both the missteps and the redemption when we stay after it long enough. Josh's first principle that he was able to influence positively in this community first leaned into him and impacted his life, pointing into his chest, reminding him to listen, stop talking. And through that example and the example she provided day after day thereafter, she loved the mess right out of him. I love that idea. Just loving the mess right out of people. More importantly, they built a relationship piece by piece, step by step, 
that has grown into an organization that has now transformed the lives of thousands around this community and countless others. My friends, in 2023, we welcomed 50 innovators, change makers, thought leaders, examples into our Live Inspired podcast. These included great folks like Martin Luther King III, Oklahoma City bombing survivor Amy Downs, New York Times bestselling author and pastor Craig Rochelle, and so many more. To help celebrate those leaders, I've created a playlist for you, the 2023 most downloaded episodes for you to enjoy while we boldly together step into 2024 and beyond. You can find that playlist and these impactful episodes by letting your fingers do the walking right now. Cruise on over with me to John O'LearyInspires.com forward slash podcast. Let me give it to you one more time for 2023. John com forward slash podcast. My friends, I want to thank you for a year of partying and celebrating life with me. I want to remind you that the foundation is indeed firm and that the best is yet to come. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary and today is your day. What a gift. Live inspired. You know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at Keeley companies.com.